The words of the teacher, son of David, king in Jerusalem. Meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Utterly meaningless. Everything is meaningless. What do people gain from all their labors in which they toil under the sun? Generations come and generations go, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun sets and hurries back to where it rises. The wind blows to the south, turns to the north, round and round it goes, ever turning on its course. All streams flow into the sea, yet the sea is never full to the place the streams come from. There they return again. All things are wearisome, more than one can say. The eye is never satisfied with seeing or the ear, its feeling of hearing. What has been will be again, and what has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. Is there anything of which one can say, look, there is something new? It was here already, long ago. It was here before our time. No one remembers the former generation, and even those yet to come will not be remembered by those who follow them. These are the words of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I kind of feel depressed after reading that, so help me out, Derek. So we're just going to close and go home now. So we invite you to stand. No, I'm just kidding. I got some things to say, but while you were reading that, I was like, gosh, it's like that, huh? And uh, especially when you read these are the words of the Lord, that's a little disturbing, but they are the words of the Lord, and they're in the Bible, so we're going to talk about it, but I just want to start by recognizing something that I think most of us feel or have felt at some point or another, and it's this, life is hard. Can I get an amen? Okay. So no matter who you are or what you do, life is hard. Whether you're single, right, or married, life is hard. Whether you're wealthy or you live paycheck, life is hard. Whether you take an Uber or public transportation, life is hard. Um, it's hard for all of us. And we need help. We need help surviving, let alone thriving in a world that is as full of uh, as many challenges as, as ours is. And so what, get, I don't know if that's a bird, if that's a, if, if you're hearing the chirping, anyone else hearing that besides me? I hope it's not just me. If so, then <laughs> is there a doctor in the house? But I think, it's, I think it's actually something else. So now that I've pointed it out, I'm sure you'll be nice and distracted the entire sermon. What I was going to say is let's just ignore it, recognize it's there, ignore it, and, uh, and we'll continue on. We need help surviving and thriving in a world like this. What we tend to do when we feel life sort of getting more difficult is we tend to turn inward because the, the difficulty in life tends to make us think that we're alone, that nobody can really understand what it is that we're going through. And so we begin to look inward. The problem with that is that none of the answers that we need can be found by looking inwardly. And so we need to recognize those things at the beginning this morning. We need to confess life is hard. Many of you smile and you're just grinding your way through it and pretending it's not hard. We see you, but we recognize and you recognize it is difficult. And we can't just turn inward. We need to look outside of ourselves for help 
in processing and dealing with this stuff. Because when we look inwardly, not only do we lose sight of the fact that we're not alone in our suffering, but again, we can't find those answers that we really need. So where do we turn to in order to get the help that we need? The way that you answer that question will make all of the difference in your life. Who do we turn to when life gets hard? Or where do we go when life gets hard and we need help? This year, our church has been reading through the Bible, uh, a little portion of the Bible every day as a part of our year of biblical literacy. And for the past few weeks, the daily readings have had us in a part of the scriptures that are referred to as wisdom literature. So specifically, there are three books that, in essence, constitute the wisdom literature in the scriptures, and they are Job, Proverbs, and then Ecclesiastes. And this teaching series we've been in for the last few weeks, we've called the, or we're calling, I should say, the School of Life. We're, we're spending our time in the wisdom literature, and then next week we're actually going to look at Song of Songs as well. Uh, to talk about things like suffering and how do we walk with God through suffering. We spent two weeks, one looking at the book of Job, and then uh, a couple of weeks ago, uh, listening in on Matt and Sarah Harms' story. Thank you guys so much again for sharing a couple of weeks ago. And then last Sunday, I talked about wisdom This in the book of Proverbs, which is this invisible guiding force of God that he's woven throughout all of life, and it's accessible to all of us. So we wonder, how do we live? Well, we pursue wisdom. Those three Sundays you can access on our web, on the podcast, uh, on our website. You can access on our app, the, the podcast there. I do encourage you, when you have some time, to go back, if you haven't been here for those three weeks, and spend some time in there. I think there's something in this for our church. I think it's timely. I think it's helpful for, for, for so many of us, because so many of us living life in the city, we know what it is to have um, to face difficulty, to face a hard life. And so um, we've been talking about those things, we've been spending weeks in these things, and today um, I wanna talk about finding meaning in a world that can feel meaningless. How do we find meaning or purpose? What is this all about? Um, how, do we, how do we manage in a life like this? So uh, if you haven't done so already, I encourage you to open your app or uh, your church app or your Bible app on your phone. Maybe you have a Bible, a printed Bible, and encourage you to open to the book of Ecclesiastes. And uh, we're gonna, I'm gonna do today what I in essence did with Job, which is try to provide somewhat of an overview of the entire book. It's sort of basic themes. And uh, so we're gonna move through pretty quickly, but we're gonna look at three or four major chunks of scripture. And the first one is the passage that Tobias just read. So you can turn to Ecclesiastes chapter one. While you're turning there, I'll say that Ecclesiastes is not an easy book. Some of you love the book of Ecclesiastes. I just wanna identify who you are. If you love Ecclesiastes, raise your hand. Okay. That does not surprise me. I see lawyers raising their hands. I see uh, people who, uh, sort of scientific, technological-minded people, and, and people that, on, you probably just say, I'm not pessimistic, I'm just honest, right? That's probably how you would respond to people, right? Well, um, it's important to know that uh, this specific form of wisdom literature that Ecclesiastes takes is actually called literary pessimism, all right? And so if you love that book, this book, great, because I think there's some really cool stuff in here, but just keep in mind the pessimistic part of it. The, po the point of writing in this way, it's an ancient form of writing, is this, that the 
it was it, this kind of writing, this sort of pessimistic literary genre, was used by the ancient thinker to, an, to in essence, like find meaning in a world like ours. It was, it's a device, a way of writing that, that tends to surface the incongruencies of the world that we live in and, and sort of put them on display so that we can meet them head on and ask, is there an alternative an alternative way. Well, Ecclesiastes is written as an exposition, in essence, of two competing worldviews. So if you've ever come to the book, of, by the way, 90% of you did not raise your hands that you like the book of Ecclesiastes, so let me, let me try to help you out as well this morning. When we come to the book of Ecclesiastes, we can, we can again recognize at the very outset, the whole point here is to hold up two opposing worldviews, to say, this is the way I see life, and then for someone else to enter into the story and say, well, this is the way I see life, and these two things are incompatible with one another. In fact, the, the worldviews that compete in, in Ecclesiastes will collide with one another. Uh, in our own lives and, and, and just in, in, in the way that we, we seek to live our lives. And the author uses these phrases, so this will sort of tip you off when you're reading through the book of Ecclesiastes to know which of the two worldviews is the author writing about right now. He'll use two phrases. One worldview is, he calls it life under the sun. And then the second worldview he refers to as life under heaven. So if you think about these two phrases as representing entire worldviews, it'll be helpful. It'll just give you a good framework for as we move throughout today and as you read Ecclesiastes on your own. So how do we understand these two worldviews? Well, just simply put, we can understand, at least from Ecclesiastes' perspective, the author's perspective, that life under the sun represents life according to our limited human worldview. So the way that we think about life, the way that we process life's events, and the way that we even sort of pattern our lives, um, if we live life according to the sun, we're doing so with our best thinking and the best human thinking that is available to us. And so we might draw from history and we might draw from different disciplines to say, well, this is how I want to live my life. And so we construct our best way forward and then we live life under the sun. Well, the second way, or the second worldview that Ecclesiastes, the author, writes about is this idea of life under heaven. And so if life under sun is life according to our best human thinking, though it be limited, life under heaven should be understood as life according to God's unlimited capacity. Life not according to how I think about it or my personal sort of constructs, but life that is given to us, understood from an outside perspective, God, the creator's perspective. That's how Ecclesiastes sets up sort of this, this uh, sort of cataclysmic sort of uh, competition. These two views are laid out for us in the book of Ecclesiastes all throughout, and then at the end, what's going to happen is the author is going to summarize those views and then give us his final word on the matter. And what Ecclesiastes wants us to do is to ultimately make a choice. Is to say with this, these facts and these worldviews laid out in front of us, how will you choose to understand the world? And how will you choose to actually live your life in this world? And so I'm putting that forward to you today to say at the end of the talk, I want to present you with the exact same choice that the author of Ecclesiastes presents all of its readers is to think about how we want to live life 
and then recognize we actually have a choice in the matter. And that this book, in fact, I'd say all of Scripture, in particular this book this morning, forces us to choose which way we will live. So I want to walk through that together this morning and bring us to a place of being able to understand the choice um, that we were making. I'll say this, I think by default, in a sense, many of us have already chosen or are currently living our lives under the life under the sun worldview. And the reason I say that is because in my conversations with so many of you, and in the conversations I hear about, and then even my own sort of personal thinking, I recognize how deeply embedded life under the sun is in my life and in, in, in your life. So whenever we begin to struggle with meaning in life, typically it's because there's a piece of, at least, life under the sun that we've yet to recognize in our own life and, and deal with. So I think most of us are already, in essence, on that path. But my prayer for you this morning as people who long for meaning, I know that you long for meaning, people who long to find significance in, in a world that so often feels like just vanity and futility, that you will choose by God's Spirit to be empowered to live and to understand life in a whole new way. So recognize a couple of voices. The critic in the text is going to, in essence, point out three, make three observations about life under the sun. I want to tell you what the critic, he's called the teacher or the preacher in Ecclesiastes. I want to tell you the, the critic's observations, and then I want to I bring you back around to, to I think, what the, author, uh, what the author wants us to see about life under heaven. So three observations of life under the sun. Observation number one, life is an endless circle on meaningless repeat. So as we begin to read through Ecclesiastes, right there at the beginning in the text that Tobias read and depressed us all before I got up here, I feel like I'm actually trying to really pull you guys out of a hole. We can do this, guys. Come on. We understand right off the bat that this is one of the key observations of the critic, and it's one of the observations that I think many of us have made about life, is that life is an endless circle on meaningless repeat. Now, I know it's depressing the first time. It's going to be equally as depressing the second time. But I'm going to pick up in verse 4 of Ecclesiastes 1. A generation goes and a generation comes. Well, that sounds good. But the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and it goes to the north. Around and round goes the wind. And on its circuits, the wind returns. All streams, they return or they run to the sea. But the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? That's a rhetorical question. It has been already in the ages before us. Now, we recognize in this text, this text was written in the ages before us. And the author of this text is saying, in the ages before us, everything's already been done. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those things who come after. In other words, life is an endless circle on meaningless repeat. One day we will, we're here, the next day we'll be gone, but the truth is, nobody really cares, and nobody will really remember. 
eventually we will just be, uh, the memory of us will just be wiped from the, from, from, from the sun. And every generation, the same thing happens over and over and over and over and over. And they won't be remembered because nothing changes. Every day is the same. We sleep a little, we wake up, we live our day, and we go to sleep again. And the world is the same. I mean, the actual events might be different, but it's really the same injustice that we see every single day. It's the same violence. The names may change, and the places might be different, but we wake up to the same thing. There's nothing new. Nothing changes. And it doesn't take long when you live life on repeat before you start to wonder, what's the point, really, in all of this? It really is depressing, and it gets worse. Life is an endless circle on meaningless repeat and observation number two, we are all going to die. So not only, I want you to stick with me, please don't leave this service early. If you've ever stayed to the end of the talk, today is the day to stay to the end of the talk. We are all going to die. Listen to, you can flip forward in Ecclesiastes to chapter three, um, and I'm gonna read verses 19 through 20. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath, and man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. And then in Ecclesiastes 9, verses 1 through 3. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hands of God. Whether it is love or hate, man doesn't know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean, to him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner, and he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun, that the same event happens to us all. So we're going to die, and so why does it really matter what we do with our lives? If we're all going to die in the end, and we all sort of suffer the same atrocities while we're alive on earth, whether we are worshipers or not worshipers, or sacrificers or not sacrificers, or lovers or haters, or what, if, if the same things happen to us in our life, then why choose to live in a particular kind of way? Psalm 144 says something very similar. Man is like a breath. His days are like a passing shadow. This idea of the, the, the brevity of life and then the questions that come as a result, if we're just here for a very limited time, a vapor of a life, then shouldn't we or why couldn't we, why wouldn't we just live the way that we want to get as much good or fun or pleasure or wealth out of it as we can? Because there's no guarantee that if I do the right thing or live holy, a holy life or live a righteous existence, there's no guarantee that anything's gonna go any way better for me than it is for the next person. So let me just live life to the full. And Ecclesiastes, the critic encourages us to do that. So eat, drink, and be merry. Have your wine, do these things. Do what you can to get as much from life as possible. So why does it matter what I do with my body? You can't tell me what to do with my body because life is a vapor, who cares? All the stuff happens to me, uh, the same stuff that happens to uh, people who aren't living this way is going to happen to me anyway, whatever, who cares? Why does it matter how I treat the foreigner? Why does any of this matter? 
What does it matter if we're all going to suffer the same fate anyway? Because life is an endless cycle on meaningless repeat and we're all going to die. And finally, number three, the third observation of the critic is that all of life is random, which speaks to this idea. I can try to be good, but why does it matter? Listen to Ecclesiastes 9:11. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. According to the critic, life is just completely unpredictable. And unlike the book of Proverbs, if we go back and think about the wisdom of Proverbs, unlike Proverbs that presents this world where the righteous are rewarded, the critic here in Ecclesiastes has witnessed something very different. The the author of Ecclesiastes has has witnessed that the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper. Sure, sometimes the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer, but there's no rhyme or reason to the world. It's all vanity because nobody can control what happens to them. Anyone who thinks they can control the outcome of their lives is just really fooling themselves. And some of you have lived this out and it's really rocked your world. It's messed with your theology a little bit. Because you've, you've really put your best foot forward. You, you've really decided to try to live in a way that pleases God. And you've suffered loss. And your dreams have not been realized. And you feel down and alone. And you wonder, what in the world? Why am I doing, why am I doing any of this? Because all of life is random. Therefore, life is havel. Havel is the word that the, the author uses. And it's the word that we translate as in, into English in Ecclesiastes into meaningless. In, in some of your translations of the Bi- your Bible, it will say, um, it will be translated vanities. So instead of meaningless, meaningless, everything's meaningless, it's vanity of vanities. It's the same word, it's this word havel. It's a Hebrew word, and it's translated, again, here in vanity or meaningless, but that's not exactly what it means. Did anybody watch the Bible Project video on the book of Ecclesiastes? Okay, I shouldn't have you raise your hand. That puts people in a bad situation. Okay, let's all keep our hands down. And um, if you looked at or watched the video um, on Ecclesiastes, it's very helpful. And they talk a lot about this word havel because it appears like nearly 40 times in Ecclesiastes, which is a relatively short book. But it's sort of the conclusion, it's the metaphor that the critic uses when when talking about life under the sun. Life under the sun is havel. It's meaningless or it's vanity, but more more than that, it's it's like, it's a mist. Havel isn't just meaningless, it's it's a vapor, it's smoke. You, You can't get your hands around it. You can see it and it looks tangible but you can't really take hold of it. So to say that life is havel is to say that life looks like you can take hold of it and get your arms around it, but you really can't, and that's really unsettling. And that puts us in a posture of sort of defensiveness or insecurity. And when we're in a posture of defensiveness or insecurity because of havel, the way we see life, then it causes us to make choices and to do things again that seem right to us, It may or may not, in the end, lead us to the destination that we hope to arrive at. And so, 
how do we handle the havel of the world, this metaphor the, of, for a world that's fleeting or a world that's elusive? What do we do about it? Well, I, I, I think first what I want to point out is that God doesn't see the world the way the critic in Ecclesiastes sees the world. God doesn't, thank you, Tobias, God doesn't see the world as havel. God doesn't see the world as meaningless. God doesn't see the world as fleeting or passing or a vapor or something to be grasped that we can't ever get a hold of and therefore we live in the frustration of insecurity our whole lives. God doesn't see life that way. God doesn't see life under the sun. God sees life under heaven. And for God, life under heaven is not a meaningless circle or an endless circle on meaningless repeat. That is not how God sees the world. This is not how our Jewish friends and neighbors see the world. This is not how the author of Ecclesiastes or any of the authors in the scriptures see the world. Now, it's something we've adopted, many of us, to think about life as a circle, but that's not at all really how life actually is, not according to a Christian worldview, not according to the Bible. You say, well, Derek, how can you say that life isn't just this endless circle on meaningless repeat? Well, because our Bible starts with these words, in the beginning. Our story has a beginning. And as you read the scriptures, what you'll find eventually is that our story has an end, a consummation or a completion of all that God is doing, all that God has designed to do. Our life is not lived as an endless, meaningless, rote, routine cycle that repeats itself and just forgets about people when they're gone. According to the scriptures, life has a beginning and the end. And in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And in the end, we see Jesus seated on the throne representing the consummation of all things where all of the world now has become submitted to the good and glorious and peaceful reign of Jesus, which is what the world is desperate for, isn't it? To be under the rule of a peaceful king. And in the meantime... Between the beginning and the end, we together have this high and holy calling to join God in the story that has a beginning and an end and a middle where we live out the story in partnership with God to bring about this consummation, to hurry it along, to join God in the renewal of all things. The psalmist also writes, Psalm 90, 12, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. In other words, the psalmist doesn't, doesn't sort of play with this idea of time or life as some sort of like vapor that's just gone and so we just live however we live. The psalmist understands that there is a limit to our days and that there is something holy about those days that we live and that we are to do something with those days because we're advancing a story that leads to the consummation, the glory of Jesus at the end of all things. Right now, your right now counts forever. What you do matters. Because life under heaven does not end with our returning to dust when we all die. That's not where it ends. Because life according to God, life under heaven is about resurrection. Jesus is the first fruits, we're told, 
the re- of the resurrection from the dead. And just as Jesus was resurrected, so too will those who belong to God. If you don't believe this, that's fine. But this is basic Christian orthodoxy. This is basic Christian teaching. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is, it's not Havel because this isn't written in Hebrew, but look at the word that's translated here. It's futile. It's, it's the same idea. You are still in your sins. So the point is, if we say we live life under heaven, but we really don't believe that in the resurrection of the dead, then we actually still are in our futility. We actually are still living life under the sun. Then those who also have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we, uh, we have hope in Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. So we don't just have hope in this life as Christians. We have hope in life eternal, the abundant life. So according to God, life under heaven is not an endless circle on meaningless repeat, and it does not end in death, and it is not random. So if we only listen to the voice of the critic, whether it be the voice of the critic here in Ecclesiastes or our own critical voice about the world, or what we end up doing is we get and we live in an echo chamber, which means we get around people and we sort of, we can choose this now, whereas in generations before, people couldn't choose this as easily, but we can choose, we can, we can decide who's in and who's out in our life. And so we re- surround ourselves with people who repeat the things that we say. We surround ourselves with people that we will repeat what they say. So we just end up sort of saying all of the same things. We become an echo chamber. And I'll tell you, there are many of us in this room that feel enlightened because we're not bound by all these rules and laws of God and we're choosing a better, more sort of a smarter, more sophisticated way of living. And I want to tell you something. You're probably being influenced by the echo chamber you've chosen for yourself. And we all have it. We all have this echo chamber because the opposite could be said. Maybe this is an echo chamber. That's why we have, to, we have to break out of these chambers that we've built for ourselves, and we really have to listen. Are we really open to hear the voice of God in our lives? Are we really open to listen to wisdom? And I want you to listen here to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. This is, this is a summation of all of wisdom. Now, the way that Jesus summed up all of the law was to love your neighbor, was to love uh, the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus said, all the laws are summed up in those two things. Well, the author of Ecclesiastes is going to do the same thing for us here, but he's going to do it for wisdom. So how does, how, does, how does the author of Ecclesiastes sum up all of the wisdom of Proverbs, all of the wisdom of, of the scriptures, all of the wisdom of God? And here he goes. In uh, chapter 12, verse 13, Ecclesiastes, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all mankind. For God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. So, we should recognize this. Life under heaven is not easy. And yes, much of life to our limited eyes and ears is Havel, 
It's vanity. It seems meaningless. But the idea here is that one day God will clear up the Havel and bring his light to bear on all that we have done now. So listen, if you don't get anything else, please get this today. The aim of Ecclesiastes is not hopelessness. The aim of Ecclesiastes is humility. It's humility. So you say, if, okay, so if I wanted to eventually decide to live life under heaven, to live life not according to the best sort of ideas of man that we have to offer, but really to live according to the designer himself, God the creator, if I will open myself up, how do I begin to live under heaven? Well, to live under heaven is to humble ourselves and to trust that life has meaning even when we can't make sense of it. That doesn't take wisdom. That doesn't take courage. It takes humility. It takes humility to be in relationship with a God that we trust. That we trust in the end, the things that make no sense, that seem like vanity. To trust that those things that are meaningless and just havel in our life that we just can't even get our heads around. To trust that in the end, God will shine his light and clear the havel. The price of admission to real life, abundant life, is humility. This is what it costs us to live life under heaven. So I'm going to read a little bit of an extended passage. This again is the Apostle Paul. This is in his letter to the Philippians. This will be familiar to some of you. The Apostle Paul writes, Therefore, if you have any encouragement from being united with Christ... If any comfort from his love, if any common sharing in the spirit, if any tenderness and compassion, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being one in spirit and one in mind. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourself, above, above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interests of others. And he continues, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Now, what Paul is doing right now is he's inserting Jesus as our exemplar for how to live life under heaven. Paul is saying all of this is accessible to you and the way that you get to it is through Jesus and look at how Jesus got to it. He says, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, now none of us in this room would claim to be in very nature God. None of us would claim to be God. Therefore, Jesus claims to be God. The scriptures seem to back that up pretty clearly. And so here is Jesus who is God. And though he was being in very nature God, he did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Are you kidding me? I would use that to my own advantage in a big way to be on par with God, but Jesus didn't do that. Rather, he made himself nothing. Now, it doesn't say that he, that he saw himself as unworthy. It, it means that he chose. No one did this to him. He chose to humble himself. So how does he do it? By taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Now, here's the payoff. Therefore, 
In other words, because Jesus chose the path of humility and life under heaven, therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now, there are very few people in this room, I think, that would disagree with this idea that Jesus lived a life full of meaning and great purpose. Even if you don't believe he was the Messiah, Jesus has a pretty good rep in the world today. But remember what it cost him. Remember what a life of meaning and purpose cost him. In humility, Jesus emptied himself, subjecting himself to the havel of life, including death which makes no sense, does it? Death makes no sense to us. Therefore, what happens is God exalts him to the highest place. Listen to Matthew, the gospel writer, Matthew 23, 12. For those who exalt themselves will be humbled, and those who humble themselves will be exalted. Listen to James. James says God opposes the proud, but he shows favor to the humble. Listen to Peter, 1 Peter 5, 6. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty right hand that he may lift you up in due time. So that's our choice. That's your choice this morning. Every one of us must choose either life under the sun or life under heaven. The question really, I think, comes down to will you or will I, will we humble ourselves before God this morning? Say, well, how do we humble ourselves? Well, it starts here. The summation of wisdom in Ecclesiastes is twofold. Fear God and walk in his commandments. Will you fear God? Not fear God in, as in being afraid of God. I, how many times in scriptures have we read together as a, as a family, fear not, an angel shows up or Jesus shows up. And the first words out of his mouth is to fear not. This is a different kind of fear. We're being called to fear God, not to be afraid of him, but to live in awe of him and holy reverence. And maybe we've just become too comfortable with God to really fear him in this way. Maybe we just love the idea that Jesus was a friend of sinners, and he was and he is. Thank God, that means he's my friend. But we get so comfortable with this idea that we then just get chummy and buddy-buddy with God, and we forget that God is the king above all kings, that God is the creator. He holds everything in his palm. He is sovereign over every living thing. Things on earth and things under the earth and the things in the heavens. God is holy and he is awesome and he needs to be and, and we have to as followers of God living under heaven come to him in that way first. And that's what humility is. Is to recognize God isn't to be toyed with. I love C.S. Lewis in, in the Chronicles of, of Narnia that, that famous line where the kid is saying, you know, is, uh, he recognizes the, the lion. He, he, he realizes, oh my gosh, I'm going to see Aslan. And Aslan, of course, represents God, the character of Christ. And, and, and he asks, is, is Aslan safe? He's a lion. Is he safe? And the answer he gets, of course, is not one that well, I don't think any of us really long for, which is, no, he's not safe, but he is good. If we don't have a, a view of God that... It, that at least allows for some sense that God may do something outside of my comfort, 
or God may do something that is a little bit frightening, or that God has the power to do whatever he wants, if we don't come to him in that fear and that awe and that reverence, we will never humble ourselves to live life according to his design. So I think it starts here. Will we fear God and awe and holy reverence before him? And then secondly, will we keep his commandments? Will we keep his commandments? Not will we know his commandments. And not will we talk about them or go to a church that values God's word, but will we personally, when we leave here today and this week, will we live our lives according to the way that God has called us to live? Only those who choose to fear God and walk according to his commandments will taste life under heaven. That's the truth. So that's the cost. So here's what I want to encourage you to do this morning. Take a moment and just get it out. Just take a moment before God today and just confess your frustration about the futility of life. Just bring it to him. Confess the meaningless nature of what you see around you and what you're experiencing. Confess it. Bring that to God. Confess how meaningless it all feels. Get it out before God today. Then, I want to invite you to confess that Jesus is God and you are not. That it is God who holds us in his hand, not the other way around. We confess that Jesus is Lord and we are not. Confess that the answer to the Havel is not getting more wise, although we should pursue wisdom. It's not getting more pleasure, although God has made us for pleasure. It's not getting more wealth, and there's nothing inherently wrong with having more wealth. But the answer to the Havel is entrusting God to make meaningful whatever is meaningless in our life as opposed to trusting those other things. So let's confess to live according to what he wills and not what we will. The beauty of this is this, in due time, and I don't know the circumstances of your life and I don't know the havel that you're facing, but in due time, God is faithful and will lift you up just as he's lifted up Christ. Amen, let's pray. So Father, it just sort of strikes me that we've come to the scriptures uh, looking for answers over the last few weeks and have walked away maybe without the answers that we were hoping for. God, I'm also convinced that you've answered us in exactly the way that we need to be answered. Father, instead of sort of lightly treating things that are anything but, you have met us with a a strength and a wisdom and a power that is equal to the depth of our suffering and and our questioning, our doubting, our fears. So we thank you for the way that you meet us in that. God, my simple prayer today is that through your word and our time together, that we would just pursue you, that we would leave today knowing that the answer lies in being with you, that we would long to be with you more, and that you would help us be with you more. So, Father, we just present ourselves to you this morning, and we confess that life doesn't seem to, to make sense at all, and we don't really have any of the answers. But God, rescue us from life under the sun today, that we may live the abundant life 
a life where you can be trusted, a life in which you will shine your light on all that is meaningless and make sense of it one day. We worship you, Jesus. In your name we pray.